This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Carissa Orlando. Carissa has a doctorate in clinical community psychology and specializes in work with children and adolescents. Prior to her career in psychology, Carissa studied creative writing in college and has written creatively in some form since she was a child. An avid horror fan for much of her life, it was only a matter of time before she merged her understanding of the human psyche and deep love for storytelling into a piece of fiction. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to discuss her debut novel, The September House. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Carissa. Hello, thank you for having me. Excited to have you, and I'm curious, Carissa, where does your story as an author begin? That's, that's an excellent question. I probably have kind of two starts to a story, maybe sequel. Um, first is when I was a child, I kind of always loved writing. I would write silly little stories like when I was a teenager that should never see the light of day ever. Um, but I kind of decided like when I was applying to colleges and thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, being a, an author didn't feel like a viable career choice for me at the time. And so I said, what else am I interested in? And the answer was psychology. So then I just was in school for the next decade and a half, um, I think. And so that kind of dipped a little bit in, in the writing. I wasn't writing much aside from papers and notes and reports and things like that. And then when I was finally emerging from that cave of graduate study, um, the creative writing came back. And so that was kind of the part two of the, the writing journey. Well, I want to explore like how it came back. But before I do, I'm curious. Um, you mentioned, you know, when you were younger, like it didn't seem like like being a writer, being an author didn't seem like a viable path for you. Why? Why did you make that that judgment back then? Maybe either pessimism or realism. I'm not too sure. Um, I knew enough about myself that I wouldn't ever want to write anything except what I was personally interested in. And I knew that the odds of me kind of immediately writing something that launched a self-sustaining career was very limited. 
And so I kind of figured instead of putting my eggs in the writing basket and it turning out that I'm just going to have to write things for other people or things that I'm not particularly interested in, let me pursue something that I am interested in. Now, lo and behold, psychology does include a lot of writing. Um, Most of it is not that interesting. I'll manage to work myself into a corner both ways. But hey, I found the found the author journey there. Yeah. Very true. And I know just having, you know, that's my undergraduate, I was going to do a PhD in clinical. Um, And, you know, I know how much writing is involved, just, you know, not just with coursework, but of course, preparing your dissertation. I mean, it's, uh, Uh it is, it is a, it is a lot of writing and a lot of editing. So that that was probably a good, I don't want to say entry point, but, you know, going into a creative writing process, and then all the editing that comes along with it and taking feedback, from others along the way, I would have to imagine your background in 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 psychology, you know, helped you in in that regard, preparing you in that regard. I think it did, honestly, because you there's a lot of writing, but there's also a lot of feedback. So when you're developing as a therapist, you have a supervisor that reads your notes, reads your assessment reports, you have mentors that read any research writing, um, and I, I think I can speak for a lot of graduate students when I say that, like, editors are much kinder in their <laughs> feedback. Not Nothing against any of the people that I worked with personally. I was fortunate to have very, very kind mentors and supervisors, but not always. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very used to people kind of looking at my writing and be like, this is nonsensical, do better. Um, and so I never was bothered by people critiquing what I was writing or suggesting doing things differently because it's just it's just part of the school. Yeah. It was actually a lot nicer in the in the professional writing sphere. Um people are much kinder. Yeah. Well you said, you know, after sort of earning the doctorate, um starting your professional life, that's when the creative writing came back. In what ways did it come back? How did that manifest itself? It's hard to answer because honestly, I feel like it came back kind of with a vengeance. Um, I was sort of in a period of my studies. Uh, it's funny you mentioned dissertation. I was doing research and writing my dissertation at the time. And I kind of joked that uh, this book came out of a, an avoidance of writing my dissertation. Like it was either dissertation or the novel and the novel came, the novel worked out yeah. a little um, but I was at a, a part of career where it was kind of at the tail end when I was just doing intensive clinical work, but it it really felt like a nine to five. And so I was getting home. The dissertation was kind of, you know, I was collecting um, data and things like that. And so I had all this strange free time that I hadn't had for an incredibly long period of time. Um, and inspiration kind of hit. And the book just kind of came out of me. So it was, it felt very sudden and surprising, but I am not complaining at all. So of course, is, is the book we're talking about here, The September House or is, yep. okay. Because mm-hmm. I know a lot Correct. of authors, you know, don't have, you know, their first uh, go around isn't necessarily what, what gets published. Um, so tell me, you know, what, what can you share with us about The September House? Yeah. So the spoiler free of it is it's an atypical haunted house story. We join our protagonist, Margaret, um, 
and she lived in and has lived in the most haunted house you could ever think of for the past four years. And so whereas most people, when they move into a house and they realize it's haunted, they they peace out, they flee. But Margaret decides she's going to make it work. This does not bother her. And so she creates all of these kind of rules for living in the house. And she considers this problem solved. Um, and her husband, on the other hand, uh, has a different take on it. And so after four years, he's had enough and he kind of, kind of vanishes. He's done. He leaves. Their adult daughter, Catherine, uh, comes to the house to see where her father got off to. And unbeknownst to her, she chose kind of the worst time of the year when all the hauntings get particularly bad. Um, Catherine's unaware of the hauntings. So Margaret has to both keep Catherine safe from the house itself while still following the rules as best she can. Um, and things only go downhill from there. Oh, interesting. So I, I'm curious. Hey, so uh, the daughter didn't live in the house, so she didn't know it was haunted. Uh, what's going on in Margaret's head? Because, I mean, I, I watch, you know, a fair amount of horror, read it too. <laughs> and I, the first time a house whispers get out, you know, I'm I'm leaving. Like, I back, <laughs> I don't even, I'll leave, I'll leave, I, I won't leave the dog, but everything else is staying, you know, so. <laughs> Is is there, I mean, do we come to learn something perhaps about Margaret and why this doesn't bother her? Or? Yeah, I mean, we learn we learn quite a bit about Margaret. Margaret is, without getting too spoilery about it, she is kind of the perfect person for coping with a haunted house. She does not rile easily. She's been through some stuff and she kind of knows how to handle herself in some of these situations. She knows what what needs to be done. Um, and so when Catherine visits, it's a little bit of an, an, an oh shit moment for Margaret because while she very much wants to stay in her house and wants to maintain the status quo, it's also incredibly important to her that she continue to keep Catherine safe. Catherine's an adult and can kind of keep herself safe at this point. And some of the things in the house are legitimately dangerous and... Margaret will have to keep Catherine there. So she is in, Margaret is in quite a pickle. Quite a pickle indeed. Quite a pickle. So this story comes to you kind of dissertation time. And you know what I, what I think is fascinating is that this is the first thing you've, you've written, um, you know, I, since high school. And I know we're not supposed to talk about you know, what you were writing as a teen. <laughs> you seem somewhat embarrassed by it, although I'm curious to know a little bit more about that part of your life. However, um, so what what was the writing process like? Sort of walk me through, um, you know, was it was it a daily writing process? You know, how, how, when did you start introducing other people to this story? Uh, I'm just really curious how you go from, you know, sort of zero, you know, fiction publications under your belt to your first thing sort of catching fire. I'm curious to know that myself. Um, yeah, so the writing process was truly... And I guess I should say, like, I, I would, like, dabble in little fiction things throughout. Like, when I was in um, college, I minored in creative writing. So I had, like, some things going there. Um, and a little bit of writing when I got my master's. But this was the first full thing I had finished since I was a, a kid, basically. Uh, and I I think I was just so excited by the idea that it was almost... um 
not to, to use this word inappropriately, but almost kind of like a manic just process of writing. And so I almost think that because I hadn't managed to finish something in so long, it was this sense of urgency of like, get it out as quickly. Rest in south. I was I was writing every evening. I would try to stay up and write. Um, if I had a lunch break where I didn't have to prep for clients or do notes, I would write. So it was like kind of whenever I had some spare time work on this thing. And I kept it kind of under wraps until I until my spidey senses were telling me it was gonna get finished. Um, at the time, so I was off on internships, so I was living away from my spouse at the time, so was just, which also helped with free time of, of writing. Um, I didn't tell him that I was even writing something until I was about 70% of the way through. And we were just out to dinner one night, like, hey, I've been working on a novel, and I think I'm going to finish it. Um, similarly, I didn't tell other people, uh, I didn't tell my parents I had written it until I was midway through. I didn't tell friends I had written it until it was done. Some people didn't know it happened until I actually had a book deal. So I was, it was very, I kept it on, I very much kept it on the DL because it was almost just superstitious. Like don't, don't acknowledge it or it'll go away. Yeah. Yeah. So walk me through getting that book deal and sort of going to, you know, how, how you found your agent, which I'm assuming is the way you went, yeah. um, given that it's traditionally published, but you know, how you found your agent and then kind of working through the, the publishing process. Uh, um, so finished the book and then kind of went through editing, decided I was going to go through the querying process. So I got my kind of query letter and various materials together, um, researched agents. And I was trying to kind of be, smart and methodical about it. So finding agents who had explicitly stated that they were into representing horror and being sure that I wasn't sending them something they weren't interested in or had anything on their no list. And so I kind of set out a couple couple queries at a time, wait a couple days, couple more. And then um, if it seemed like I was getting zero bites, I like revisited my letter, revisited my materials, tweaked it a little bit. Um, and that I had one kind of one little spark of interest that sadly didn't didn't work out. So um, I think the agent was just kind of was taken was backing away from taking clients for a little while. That was very disappointing. Um, but fortunately, after a full year of querying, um, my agent uh, Kat and Sharon at Folio took interest in the manuscript, asked to read it, and like. God bless them. <laughs> they they saw something in it, and I appreciate them because they they took it. We did just another kind of quick round of edits, and then um, they sent it out. I uh, signed with them in the summer of 2021, and then by November of 2021, they had uh, we had the deal with Berkeley. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a great story. So so many things to just to focus on. Uh, just a couple things I want to focus on there. Number one. You know, you didn't take a buckshot approach to, uh, and pardon the shooting reference, I don't usually say things like that, but I think a lot of people, especially first-time authors, they'll just take their cover letter and spray it, you know, wherever. <laughs> and you actually took the time to research, hey, who is, you know, representing horror, who's interested in representing horror. You even used the word no list, like kind of understanding what people aren't interested in. So I think that was, um, you know, that's 
admirable, especially for a, a first time author, again, who typically, you know, it's, hey, I want to get this in front of everybody. Um, and also the pacing of it. It sounds like you you sent a couple out at a time and maybe waited for responses before sending even more out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of that was, I mean, I'm nerdy. I do research. And so when I knew I was getting into this process, I tried to read up a little bit about it online. And so those were the things that were that were suggested. Um, and it's this weird balance because you're not necessarily going to hear back immediately. It might be a while before you hear back. But if it's a while, the answer is probably going to be no. So yeah. But also knowing that if you're getting a lot of radio silence or a lot of no's, Maybe there's something in your letter that's not clicking. And I honestly, I don't know how literary agents do it because I imagine their inbox is constantly just exploding and they have to make a lot of quick decisions off of not a lot of information. And so like the ability to make your material stand out from the thousands that they have is... I think that there are like strategies that authors can use, but I think there is a part of it that might be just like random or kind of a crapshoot of is it who would be interested in your thing going to click on that email and find something they like and not already have like a client list full of people who are doing the same thing or, or believe that there is some space in the market for for your book if there's already things out there. And I don't predict it. So respect. <laughs> exactly. I, I always imagine they had like teams of uh, lowly paid interns reading all of these. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Or they just had a dartboard that they, you know, would put like 10 up on the wall and see wherever the dart hit. And maybe, I don't know, that's probably yeah. not true. <laughs> that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. The enter thing definitely would not surprise me. But I mean, yeah, it's it's if you've if you've got seven gajillion things to choose from, you know, how are you going to do it? At, at a certain point, you imagine it's got to be arbitrary. But I don't know. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned that I that I could certainly relate to is you know getting some interest early on from from an agent and then having it sort of go away because there's a, you know, you do get, and I can speak from my own personal experience, a lot of rejection. You do get a lot of form letters back saying, um, they, and all the form letters from agents say the exact same thing. There is like zero creativity. You know, they expect, you know, query letters to be customized and, you know, really stand out. Meanwhile, their rejection form letters, anything but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the moment you get some like feedback in a letter and say, hey, we'd like to see, you know, more than just the first couple of chapters, you know, send us, you know, maybe the first, you know, 30 pages or something. And then th- th- that's almost like getting a yes and you get excited. And then, uh, you know, the, the flip side is that, well, you know, then then it becomes a no or a not now or, um, you know, so I, I do I do sort of. I can empathize with that because that has certainly happened uh, more than once for for years, truly. Yeah. Yeah. It is so it's so crushing, too. And like the process, I feel, is so um, long. I just have to compliment my agent, Kat, because she's very fast in reviewing manuscripts. I don't know how she does it, but that's not necessarily the case (laughs) for other agents. They might. So it's like okay, like you got it. It's been a minute. Like, I don't know if I need to relook at this manuscript or how aggressively I need to be querying 
other people. And so there's this weird sort of limbo. And then when you find out it's not going to happen, it's not soul crushing, but then there's this sense of like, okay, well, I couldn't have been spending this time, you know, doing additional edits or sending it out to other people or things like that. It's like, oh, that stinks. Um, so I was definitely very disappointed. Um, but I, it, it weirdly ended up being a great thing um, because that like kind of lit a fire under me where I was like, all right, I felt like I'd wasted some time, but I was like, someone had interest in this book. Like someone saw something in this book and the the way that this person kind of phrased how it wasn't going to work made it, it did not make it seem like it was the book's fault. It seemed like it just, things weren't lining up. And so it's like, okay, someone likes this thing, someone else must. And so I like really set a schedule where I was like, I'm going to send X number of queries out per week. Like we are just going to done for this thing. And it, we're we're going to keep going until it happens. And I think that that was that helped with landing with my my current representation. And it seems like it, it, it all worked out the way it was supposed to work out because exactly seem very happy with your representation. And it seems like it was a great working relationship and things certainly, you know, we're we're fast tracked. You know, we're, we're talking about a year. <laughs> You know, when, um, a year ago from the book deal, right? And and now the book is uh, just about ready to uh, to be born. So yeah, oh, it's it's born. It's been out for almost a month. Oh, there you go. So yeah. it's there. It is. I mean, it's probably walking and talking by this point in time. <laughs> one uh, one thing I want to ask before moving on to uh, my final segment is um, about you know writing uh, being a therapeutic process. So. I've interviewed a fair number of, you know, people with um, sort of mental health credentials on the show who've also written books. And I'm always curious, in what ways do you view, if any, writing as writing as therapy, writing as part or, or a tool in the therapeutic process? Um, I extremely very much a part of the therapeutic process. I mean, I for for you. Currently, I've kept a journal. And so even just like journaling and the nonfiction element of it, I think is therapeutic uh, of just kind of getting your thoughts out of your brain and in some sort of coherent order, even if it only is coherent to you. I think there's something incredibly valuable of that. Um, but for me, in terms of fiction writing, I think what makes it particularly therapeutic um, and this might be idiosyncratic to me. So working in the mental health profession is can be stressful. You're interacting with people who are not in the best time of their life and you have a lot of maybe emotionally intense days or days with a lot of highs and lows. And it's challenging for me or it had been challenging for me historically to not take that home with me when I left the office. And finding things that could jolt me out of still in the office um, what was particularly useful. And writing is one really cool way of doing that because I almost feel like I switched from my day job to my night job. They do a lot of my writing at night. And so it's kind of nice to like, I leave this, this office where I'm in right now and I go to my home office, which is a couch, and kind of sink into that world. And there's something really nice about just taking time away from the crap that your brain is throwing at you and returning to it later. And it feels 
less crappy when you return to it. Yeah. Well, very good. Thank you for uh, reflecting on that for me. Um, I always like to get to know my guests a little bit better with some pop culture questions. So I am curious. What the, <laughs> uh, this is going back to your childhood now. When when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Oh, God. Um, so I was like, pop culture, this is going to be like past fail for me. Like, what do I know from pop culture? Um, what did I watch on TV when I was a kid? When I was a teen, I was really into Friends, a little, little bit dating me, but it was like on TV when I was a kid. And so I watched a lot of Friends, a lot of sitcoms. Growing up, I think I watched a lot of cartoons, like Nickelodeon stuff, mm -hmm. things like that. My parents were, uh, my mom was good about being like, you have X number of hours in front of the TV and then you have to go, I don't know, read a book or touch grass or something like that. And I appreciate I retroactively appreciate that of her. Yeah, you mentioned dating yourself with friends and you were saying when you were a teenager, friends was on when I was well into my uh, college years and career. <laughs> I will date myself saying that. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, I remember reading in, in my intro for you being a horror fan from a young age. Um, tell me, what were your favorite, you know, stories uh, or, you know, horror books or even horror movies that, that you enjoyed when you were younger? Yeah, when I was younger, well, to talk about TV, Are You Afraid of the Dark? A wonderful kind of gateway horror for the young kids. Um, like looking back on that show, it's a little rough. But I mean, when you're a kid, it's like the scariest thing you've ever seen. Similarly, um, the was scary stories to tap hell in the dark that book with the famously terrifying illustrations another wonderful gateway warmer for the elementary school-aged child um and then when i was a kid i got a little well, into or into like middle school teenage years definitely read a whole lot of stephen king like every proper horror person did when they were young they read a stephen king maybe earlier than they should have um oh my goodness yeah i think those are those are kind of my my early childhood for foundational memories do you have a favorite king novel not anymore so growing up uh i really liked needful things that was i had a lot of fun with that book i weirdly have memory like i remember reading Cujo. And being so angered by the ending that I literally threw the book across the room and was, which now I'm like, that's an amazing reading experience. I love that. That's so good. Um, but I, I feel like I can't say it's my favorite. <laughs> Just because I think the ending is mean, but it's so wonderfully mean. Um, yeah, I'll say, I'll say needful thing. Okay. I enjoyed that book a lot. Very good. Do you have a favorite horror movie of all time? Forget about when you were a kid. Do you have a, does one stand out to you as being a favorite? Yeah. Okay. I think I have three answers to this. Um, I think the scariest horror movie for me was, I would just say the American version of The Ring simply because I saw it before the Japanese version of The Ring, but that's the only movie that I've full, left full lights on at night after I saw it. I don't think I slept. Um, it did not help that I had a TV in my room. That's scariest movie. Um, best bad horror movie is Sleepaway Camp. Highly recommend. That thing's a piece of crap and it's gorgeous. 
Um, and then I think best all around for a movie in terms of scares, well-directed, something great to say is it follows. Very good. I just, I don't watch horror that much anymore. Although this time of year, I, I do tend to find a few things to uh, yeah. enjoy. But I, I was on a plane back from Chicago the other day. This is not the right sort of atmosphere for, uh, <laughs> but um, The Pope's Exorcist was not a terrible movie. Um, oh, yeah. It was pretty we'll have... nice. We'll have to check that out. It's always watching on a plane is always like, all right, what's up? What's this experience going to be like? But I keep seeing that on the various places. We'll have to check it out. Yes. Yeah, so I, mean, I, was I was always a big fan of anything demonic possession related. So <laughs> this one uh, did not disappoint. It had a nice twist in the middle of it, too. So I have to say. Oh, have to say that uh, <laughs> Russell Crowe put on a couple pounds, but we're not going to judge. Um, <laughs> I favorite um, favorite place to write. Do you have a favorite place to write? I I well yeah I kind of have like a writing room, so I have. It's really not like where it's on what I have this sofa that my husband hates. He actually fantasizes about burning it in our backyard, but the sofa it was my parents I got it when I was like 16 and then they gave it to me when I was kind of just out of college and too broke for furniture and I've had it since then it has moved eight different places with me and this is not an easy to move couch it's a very heavy very cumbersome it's been torn up by a couple different animals it does not look great it's the single most comfortable couch you will ever sit on in your life I love it so much um and my husband hates it because every time he has moved it with me, I'm like, this is going to be the last place we move this couch to. I stay fully lined. So wherever that, that's where I'm writing. I try not to tie myself to that. I'll also, I, I've literally written on my phone in line at Chipotle. So <laughs> when, when they're a little slow putting that bowl together. Um, how about favorite place to read? Do you have a favorite place to read? Only that same cow. This couch gets a lot of action. Oh, yeah. Gotta sit on it, man. Um, yeah. Yeah, that. I think when I was younger, it was like wherever I have a book, it's some free time. But now it's like you get car sick and it's less fun. So the couch. There it is. And uh, last up, if you could go uh, back in time or write a letter to your younger self, Carissa, this is my dear younger me question. What would you tell a younger Carissa about uh, what life was going to be like and, and what kind of advice would you give her? Oh, interesting. Ooh. Sometimes I kind of don't want to spoil it. I mean, I think this is a similar bit of advice that I'd give to a lot of folks who are middle school age, teenage years, because I think you get fed this narrative that those are like the best years of your life. And that is... If we could just globally just acknowledge that that is just a bold-faced lie, like that would be really great. Um, I do remember having a, a driving instructor like stand in front of us or like my uh, some teacher in high school be like, these are the best four years of your life. And it's like, sir, how can you lie to children like that? That's so mean. Um, so I think that's kind of what I would tell myself it's like you know being in middle school is a distinct circle of hell and being in high school is no better but everything gets 
exponentially better the farther away you get from those places and the future will arrive quickly. So yeah, it be- there. best not to peak in high school or middle school is, is what I like to say. Yeah, that's like not a good outcome. <laughs> like if those are the best years of your life. Oh, man. The um, I loved your initial reaction, though, to that question, which was I wouldn't want to spoil it because uh, it, it's the first time I've heard that. You know, I always get a lot of um, things are going to be OK. Don't stress so much. Um, everything's going to work out, you know, worry less. But the don't spoil it, I think, is perfect because things like work out the way they're supposed to work out. Um, yeah. Things happen on their timeline, not necessarily your timeline. So or our timeline, I should say. All right, Melissa, this has been a fun conversation. I imagine the September House is available wherever books are sold. Yep, it sure is. Um, It's available wherever you want it to be. Shop local, tell your local bookstore to order it, or just give them money for some other book. There you go. And I have to say, because I've been looking at it now for uh, about 30 minutes, the little flower on top of the printer, that's just a nice touch. Well, thank you. It's Legos. Are they Legos? Oh, my goodness. Well, the printer can't be a Lego printer, though. Oh, no, that would be awesome. But no, that's a real, real printer. Lego flowers. I have all all my flowers in my office are Lego because if I was entrusted with a living plant, it would die. Well, there you go. That's exactly what I want to hear my therapist say. (laughs) I focus my efforts on other things. (laughs) Well, Carissa, thank you so much for stopping by and corking a story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.